If you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. My intention today is to show you, uh, is to get, maybe give back to you some Scriptures that you've always read, but maybe not gotten much out of or not maybe understood well. Um, one of the uh, things that happened again and again back in Hannibal as I worked through Genesis, I, as I felt people or heard people coming to me saying, I feel like I got this chapter back in my Bible. I've got some. I get something out of it now. That kind of thing. And so, uh, I hope that happens here today. That's my my desire. Uh, if you look in John chapter five, <clears throat> I want to read two portions of this chapter. They're close together, but John chapter five, verses thirty-nine through forty. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. And then, same chapter, verses 45-47. through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe Me, for he wrote of Me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I want to first of all show you that, and I don't think it's hard to do, that uh, verses 39 through 40, when he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, that he is talking about all the Old Testament scriptures. Now, certainly the New Testament scriptures speak about Jesus, but when he says, all the Scriptures. He's talking about the Scriptures that existed then. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. So the entire Old Testament, he says, speaks about me. And then later he goes on in verses 45-47 through 47, and to specifically say that Moses particularly was writing of him. So certainly all the Scripture speaks of him, but definitely Moses speaks of him. And um, I hear a lot of Christians, they read that and they think, well, where does Moses ever speak of Jesus? You know, where does He tell us about Jesus? And so, that's what I want to try to answer today for you. Um, now, let's say a few things about these verses to get us pointed in the right direction and help us know what to look for. Not just We're not looking for the name Jesus, because if we're looking for the name Jesus, we're going to have a hard time finding it. Um, he never mentions Christ, because that's a term that didn't even come into you know, the Jewish usage until much later. This anointed one. That was something that happened later. So, what does he mean? Well, the first thing I want to say is this. And this helps us out a lot. Verses 45-47. through 47, Let's look at this. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would, have, you would believe Me, for he wrote of Me. So, what I take from that is whatever it is Moses said about Jesus, it's obvious. It's clear. It wouldn't be fair for Moses to secretly put some little hidden thing in part of a verse about Jesus and then for Jesus to say, well, one day Moses is going to stand up and judge all of you because you didn't see it and know it. That's not, that's not right. It should be clear. It should be the kind of thing that if we're, just, if we're just paying attention and working through there, we should be seeing what Moses is telling us. He's telling us about Jesus. So it should be obvious and clear. We shouldn't have to be some, you know, know all the languages and 
and uh, know, know all the de little details about everything. We should just be able to read our Bibles and see it. That's number one. We're not looking for hidden secret things. We're looking for the plain message. And then, number two. Well, sorry, let me say one more thing. Um, he says, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. So the idea is this. When Moses identifies that man's problem is sin and shows the depths of that problem, they don't believe it. They think it's something else. right? They don't think that's really the issue. When Moses says that their redemption is going to come by someone who gains the victory for them, and they don't have, right? There's some deliverer or something's going to happen. They don't believe him. Instead, they set their hopes on Moses' words, other words that he gave, but they haven't even believed him. The problem is they haven't mixed his words with faith. They don't read him rightly, and it doesn't do them any good. Instead, Moses is going to rise up and say, You paid attention to the wrong things, you didn't get the basic message. I was speaking to you about Christ. He came, you didn't even recognize Him. You didn't believe Him because you didn't believe Me. And He's going to accuse them. So then let's go to this other verse, these other verses that we looked at and get another clue for us as to what we ought to be looking for. Verses 39-40, through 40, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. Moses evidently was writing not just about this man who would come, but also that this man would be able to give eternal life. Moses was telling them, yes, there's eternal life found here, but it's found in this one who's going to bring it to you. And I'm trying to get you to re recognize him when he comes. And so we should be looking for two things. Um, it, should be, it should be clear and obvious, and it should be some, some man that's going, to, that's going to come and bring life. So with those qualifications, we're looking for obvious things and something about some man bringing life. Where does Moses speak of a man who was to come that could bring life? Where does he do that? Well, um, I want us to spend a good chunk of time in Genesis, but I do want, before we go there, turn to one text that's very plain. It's, I think, the second most plain text that Moses wrote about Jesus. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 18. You can turn there with me. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. Verses 15 through 19. Now, I you trust you may be familiar with this, but if you're not, the, the New Testament does quote this passage several times and directly tell us Jesus is this prophet. But here we are, verse 15. The Lord your God will, Moses is speaking to Israel the, here, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that, I, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. There was someone coming. Moses tells us directly there would be a prophet like him. Well, what do we mean a prophet like him? How would you know it was Moses? Well, Moses stands out from all the other prophets in a couple ways. I think three ways. But there's one other text, since we're in Deuteronomy, if you would turn to the last chapter of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, you'll see at least two ways that the book of Deuteronomy 
tells us that Moses was unique. Verses 10 through 12, Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, what's the, whom the Lord knew face to face. That's one way Moses stands out. Face to face interaction with God. Intimate knowledge with God. That's one thing. What else? None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. So this other prophet maybe who was to come, he'd be like Moses. He'd be mighty in deeds and in wonders and miracles. And certainly Jesus qualifies. And I would add to this list one more thing that I think is very important. Moses stood in between God and the people interceding for the people many times. And I think that's another way in which Moses also was unique among the people of God, among the prophets. Most of the prophets heard from God and went and told the people what God said. But Moses was one who tried to intercede for the people. And so uh, that's another way I think the Lord is, uh, is or Moses is unique and the Lord is, is like him in that sense. There's uh, some other interesting things about this prophecy in Deuteronomy. And tell me if this sounds a little bit familiar to you about the Lord Jesus Christ and his life. He says he will raise up a prophet like Moses from among their brothers. Well, what does that look like among your brothers? Well, it means you could look at him and say, well, he's just like us. He's nobody special. I know where he was born. I knew his parents. He's nothing. We know him. Isn't that exactly what Jesus ran into? People saying, well, he, we know where he's from. You know, or they, they, they knew where he was raised. And so they said, well, the prophet, you know, the, the Messiah is supposed to be born over here. You know, and they used their familiarity with him as an excuse. And it was where he grew up that he couldn't do the miracles because there was no faith. Right. Because they knew who he was. He was just a brother of theirs. But the other thing that's that's crucial here is that says that the people must listen to him. And, I, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So people need to hear from God, Moses is saying, and God's going to speak through this man, and people are going to be judged by whether or not they respond rightly to his words. He says, if you don't listen to him, I'm going to, I myself will require it of your hand. Well, there are a lot of other places in, in Moses' books where Jesus is taught, talked about. But my interest particularly is this book of Genesis. Before we dive into Genesis, I want to just ask again, what does Jesus mean when he says, Moses wrote of me? I think he means this, that any honest reader of Moses will see that while Moses was faithful to carry out his leadership of the people of Israel in his own day, he was also very clearly just directing the people of Israel to look for and to hope in God, that God would send another prophet who would come later, who would declare words of life to the people which would bring blessing to them if they obeyed it. But if they rejected, they would be judged. I think Jesus at least means that. But there's more to it even than that. Moses says far more than that. This meaning in the writings of Moses, I think, is so clear that Moses, again, is a, Jesus is able to say that Moses will rise up in judgment upon people for not believing in Jesus for life. Moses will condemn them. They had Moses. He was telling them about it, and they refused to believe him. And uh, Jesus says Moses is going to rise up and condemn them. So, what do we have in the book of Genesis? Can the book of Genesis fairly be considered a place in which Moses spoke of Jesus? Well, my contention is yes, definitely. And um, 
Let me show you a couple places where maybe he is directly spoken of. And uh, the first place is in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. This is debated for sure. But in chapter 1, verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us, plural, make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this plural, God, let us make man in our own image. And a lot of people look at that and they say, I think that's referring to the Trinity. And, I, you know, I think that's probably right. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem super clear. I can't imagine Moses rising up and saying, see, you didn't know that. You didn't know that was Jesus there. I condemn you. You know, he was going to bring life. It's kind of like, that's probably not the kind of text we're talking about. It doesn't seem to be to fit the, the conditions. And there's another place where we might have another text. In Genesis 18, many people think this is a situation where a um, pre-incarnate uh, visit from Jesus in the form of a man. Moses may have written about Jesus directly here as a, the angel of the Lord is described. Look here at chapter 18 and verse 1. And the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. But then look at verse 2. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, it was three men that were standing in front of him. Well, is it the Lord or is it three men? Right? You go down a little further, and um, we read uh, of these, these three men that, uh, look at the verse, uh, oh, what's verse 17? He's talking, verse 16, the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham went with them and to set them on their way. And the Lord said, well, was it a men or was it the Lord? Who is it? And then verse 22, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood, stu still stood before the Lord. So one of, there were three men, but one of them was the Lord and the other were men or what, what is this? Well, then we read later and you know, that they were angels, and it's just like, it's confusing, you know, and is this the Lord? Is it an angel of the Lord? Is it, is it God himself? Is this Jesus? And a lot of people will say, well, this is a place where Moses spoke of Jesus. Well, here again, that doesn't seem to fit the bill. It's not so obvious, not so clear. There's nothing there about giving eternal life. It just doesn't seem to fit. It's not, it's not evident. And so, a lot of people will, again, they'll answer that question Moses wrote of me, and they turn to those two texts, and then the one in Deuteronomy, and they just stop. And I don't want you to do that. I want to see what was Jesus talking about, because Jesus wasn't talking about those texts as these, the texts he had in mind. He might be there in those passages, but that's not what he has in mind. It, I mean, is this obvious enough? Is, is, is this the thing that if we miss it, Moses is going to rise up on the last day and judge us for not understanding that Jesus Christ was the one we're supposed to see in those passages? That doesn't seem like that's the case. Is it fair to judge the, even the average reader for not understanding that? I hope not, or we're all in trouble. Is this the one that Jesus connects with bringing life and restoration unto God? Maybe. But it certainly isn't clear from these passages. So how does Moses write of Christ in the book of Genesis? How do we get there? Well, the first thing I want to say is this, and we'll go through several different ways that this happens. But number one, Moses wrote of the need for Christ. He wrote of the need for Christ. Moses wrote about a, a fallen world in which human life was intended to dwell with God and to be everlasting. 
but which now ended in death and separation from God because of sin. Moses wrote of a world in which sin had a power over the hearts of men. Think of the story of Cain. Sin's out there, desires to have you. And so the moment that, that a man opens himself up to the influence of sin, sin seizes upon him and takes him. And he finds himself even murdering his own brother. Sin is powerful. Moses wrote of a world in which humankind grew and developed under the grace of God, but also went further and further into vile expressions of sin and violence and rebellion. Moses wrote of the continued failure of even the best of men to deliver the world from this awful darkness. Abel was righteous, but he was killed. Seth maybe was a replacement, but he didn't do anything. Noah, maybe this one will deliver us. Well, that didn't happen either. Abraham, the blessing will come through him. Well, he didn't see it in his day. He didn't bring it. Isaac, nothing. Israel, nothing. It didn't happen. No one could deliver. Moses wrote of incredible judgments of God upon wickedness. Think of the flood and the Tower of Babel, famines in the land, curses upon mankind, the shocking way that Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown by God, the future destruction promise of the Canaanite people for their wickedness, which was going to be getting worse for the next 400 years. Moses also wrote of the fading hopes of people that any of them would ever be able to escape the grip of sin and restore mankind back to God. What a thing. We, I mentioned to the men the other, this weekend of, of Seth naming his son just of no account, emptiness. That's what his, name, his boy's name meant. For, and then there were few believers throughout the rest of the book who were hoping in God. But, but God was having to do so much, even in, in Genesis, to convince people to hope in Him. We have throughout the book the sense of the great need for all that, the, that has been lost from the garden, to be restored, for all of the evil and the devastation of God's world to be fixed. We have a great need to deal with sin. We have a need for a deliverer. The whole text of Genesis is about the good beginning and this interplay that is there between God and man and how wonderful that was. But then sin entered in and devastated the whole order that God established. And then God begins to His work of bringing humanity back into the, that good situation again. Back to everlasting life. Back to fellowship with God. To joy. To peace. To an existence with no shame. To, clean, to a clean conscience. When will this happen again? When will it take place? There's this underlying current throughout the whole book of this great need for everything to be set right. And we have early on in the book of Genesis that someone's going to do it. So that brings me to this next category. Moses wrote prophecies which were to be fulfilled by Christ. So he wrote of the need for Christ, and he also wrote many prophecies which spoke about what Christ would do. So we have that first in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15. Turn with me there. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God speaking to the serpent, but within earshot of the man and the woman so they can hear this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Here's this promise from God that some descendant of the woman will overturn the work that the devil has done, but it will cost him dearly to do it, right? He's going to crush that head of the serpent and strike the decisive blow. But when he does it, he's, he's not going to escape unwounded. He's going to be bit himself. He's, it's going to cost him dearly. 
So if we're reading carefully then with a believing heart, right here in chapter 3, we, we see Moses telling us what to look for. We begin looking for that. Well, will a man come? And Eve, we find her that she was looking for it. She named her first son Cain, which means we've gotten him. And her hopes was that God would, maybe God is just going to do it right away. And then he certainly failed in that. And then when she gets another son after Cain had moved away, she names that son Seth. And she thinks, well, God has appointed me a substitute for Cain, and maybe this one would do it. So Eve, all throughout her life, it seems like, was looking, hoping that God would, would provide this child. And she didn't see it, but she was looking. Then later, we, we learn about other people beginning to cry out to God for this. They feel that though God said a man would do it, there isn't a man that can. And so they begin saying, Lord, what, what are, you've got to do something. Help us. Deliver us. If you read Genesis and you don't feel that longing as you read it, and you're not believing that this is the great need, this is the thing that we're waiting on, then you haven't understood the book and you haven't believed Moses. He's telling you these are the problems. This is the big issue that's got to be dealt with. And if you don't see that there, and if you were a Jew, then you don't ever, when Christ comes, you don't believe Him because you didn't realize that was the need. The book is about this need. If you're reading this, or if you tend to see these, these stories in Genesis about the great deeds of these, these men of faith or something, you've missed it. This is not a book about great, noble, righteous men. It's about this need and how God's going to meet it. And that was one of the big problems with the Jews. Oh, our, oh, our father Abraham, he was, he was just great. It's like he was a sinner like you or I. God did something, and God needs to do something for us. Well, things go terribly bad in these next several chapters of the book. And then eventually we get to this line of Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, turn with me there. Genesis 12. Here's another promise and prophecy that, that Moses writes speaking about Jesus. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing i will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you i will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed so he's telling abraham you know we've we've, we've already heard about this prophecy about this man who was going to come and all that he was going to do some seed of the woman and now god comes to abraham and he says listen i'm going to choose you and i'm going to make of you a great nation and make your name great and the end result of that is going to be at some point all the nations of the earth all the families of the earth are going to be blessed because i'm what i'm starting to do in you and in this nation that's going to come from you what a thing what blessing is he talking about here well i'm not sure that abraham understood what blessing it was at this point because he was a pagan he was called out of his idolatry. But we as readers know the blessing that people need. They need to be made right with God. Moses has made that clear to us. Sin came in and destroyed everything. We need to fix that. Somebody needs to come and overturn the work of the devil. And now God's saying, I'm going to give a blessing. And everybody, all the nations are going to get in on it. And so we are eager to see this. What is going to happen? Well, then it gets, there's another prophecy. Let's go to chapter 22. Beginning in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. Genesis twenty-two fifteen. 15. 
and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Here God swears an oath. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Well, that means he's going to win a battle. He's going to win a victory. So this, what we saw in Genesis 3 about this, he's going to overthrow the work of the devil, but it's going to be in this conflict and he's going to himself be wounded. But here is... But he's going he's to overthrow the work of the devil and be successful. Well, here we, we read about this coming descendant, this offspring through whom we already know there's, the nations are going to be blessed. He's going to defeat his enemies. He's going to possess their gates. And in defeating his enemies, he's going to bring blessing to the nations. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The promise made to Abraham about the blessing come to all the families of the earth. And the promise that we found there in Genesis 3... And the promise we see here in Genesis 22, all these things are talking about the same thing. From this one nation, this man will come and will conquer his enemy and will bring blessing to all the families of the earth. One other clear prophecy, Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49 we read here, the scene is Israel or Jacob is at the end of his life and he's speaking to his sons and he comes to one of them. He comes to Judah. And look at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah, is a, what, he's a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. When we read that text... I'm telling you, I, I'm pleading with you, read it in the light uh, because of the things we see about conquering his enemies and about a, a, a rulership and about blessing others. I'm invited, I think, by Moses, and I'm inviting you to read this passage in connection to these other promises. I want to read it in connection with these other prophecies. We know that there was one among the descendants of Israel who was going to deliver the world and bless the world. Well, Judah's brothers are going to bless him. His name means praise, and his brothers even will, will bless him. We've been reading that, every, that, that there would be one who would bless every family of the world, and they would do it by, in conquering fashion. They would crush the serpent's head and possess the gates of his enemies. And here we read, what does he say? Verse 8, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. What a thing. Well, we, we know that uh, <laughs> all the peoples would be blessed after him after this victory. And what do we read? Your father's sons even shall bow down before you. Like they just, they honor him. Verse 9, one of these descendants, according to this text, it says it will be like a lion. Well, what about Jesus? He won a victory. You see here, even in this lion, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. So the lion went down and defeated his prey, and then he's come back. What did he do? Well, he had stooped down. He crouched as a lion. But now, as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? 
Who dares to rouse him? Because of the victory he won, there's a fear of him, a sense of having to deal with him directly, that you, he's there and you're going to have to deal with him. Who can escape him? But you don't dare rouse him. You sort of sounds like kiss the sun, lest he be angry. Right? And you perish in the way. What a thing. You have to deal with him. There's no escaping him. He's like a lion. What else do we read? Verse 10. The, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. I think the connection here, not so much in Genesis, but particularly even to the text we read in Deuteronomy, that passage and what it means is profound. One would come who would speak a word to the people that would be required of them, and if they obey, they would have a blessing. Well, what do we read? To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. They're going to obey him. He's a, he's a king who rules, but he also speaks a word and everyone obeys. That's the ultimate picture of kingship, but also of a prophet. Well, what's the result of all this? You know, so verse 11, I mean, so this is what happens. Everybody comes to him and they obey him. What does it result in? Well, this is a picture of prosperity and health and vitality and life and all the things that were lost in the garden. Binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine in his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And if dark eyes and white teeth sound maybe strange to you, you're not sure how to take it, go to the Song of Solomon. It's a picture of beauty, right? And we know this somewhat ourselves. Like we, but um, it's a picture of beauty and blessing. So in sum, what is this prophecy here teaching us to look for? Well, we should be looking for someone. Will we see in this prophecy a conflict that he wins? A kingship that follows from his conflict. The obedience of his brethren who praise him. The obedience of the nations, to, which are to his words. All of that results in rich blessings of life and the good things of God's favor. It seems starting to get pretty clear. Well, what else? How else did Moses tell us about Jesus Christ? He, he also wrote a faithful account of the lives of the men in this book and all of their brokenness. And he did that so that we would sympathize with him and to build anticipation in our lives and a desire and a hunger. We need deliverance. We need it just as they did. So we read them and we can, we can mourn with them and we can ache with them as we see the devastating effects of sin in a family. Don't you read about the dysfunction and the ache that was existing in these families and, and feel it and want, want someone to fix it? Think about this. Think about the shame and the mistrust that was brought to Adam and Eve in their relationship. Or Cain's murder of his brother. Lamech, the first Lamech we read about, threatening his, I'll explain this if you want to some other time, but threatening his wives in a poem that he wrote for them. What a thing. Sarai treating Hagar so badly that even pregnant she fled to the desert to escape her, Sarai's persecution. It's terrible. Isaac and his favoring of Esau and all the division that started in their family. The lying and the deception of Jacob and his mother taking advantage of his blind father. What in the world? Laban mistreating Jacob for 20 plus years. Joseph being sold by his brothers into slavery. Even this family, the family that God chose to work in, they're broken. They're helpless, they're in desperate need for God to act in order to keep the purposes of God going. Amen. You ought to feel the agony in these stories. 
and sympathize with them and long for a deliverer the way they were longing for a deliverer. He wrote honestly about sin and about sinful men so that we might share with them and see in their lives something that resembles our lives. When, I, when we talk about these men as sinners, we're not sitting in judgment on them. We're just saying they are like us. In their brokenness, we read about our own brokenness. In their need for a rescue from God or in their times where God did rescue them, we recognize our own need for God's rescue. In their crying out to God, we see what should be our own crying out to God. Think of the way that sin is felt and suffered under and mourned over. Jacob for, for 22 years thought Joseph was dead and mourned him. He says, when he mourns, he says, I'll, mourn, I'll go to my grave mourning him. And it looks like he did, except for in the end he was reunited to his son. What a thing. This is felt in person after person in the book of Genesis. The deep burden and weight of sin. It's heavy. And then think of the great changes that God works in the lives of these people. And, as, and we men have studied through the life of Abraham. And we see all that was changed and transformed. And we see that we should long for that in our own lives. Look what God can do. Even before all the promises came true, He was still working in these men, changing them, transforming them. Making them God's own friends even. Moses is building anticipation in our hearts for, for us to long for these deep blessings to come to the world. When will they come? When will some deliverer come who can do this? And what else did he do? Moses also wrote of Christ by, by showing us others who were longing for Christ. To encourage us to do the same. Here was Eve hoping her son Cain was the one. Years later, she still had hope and hoped maybe Seth would be the one. She was wrong, but she, she wasn't correct in what she hoped would happen, but she was correct to have that hope. Looking to God. Lamech, a different Lamech this time, names his son Noah, hoping that out of the, gr the ground that the Lord God has cursed, this one would bring us rest. He's hoping. He's looking to God. Some people, were, we, we're not given their names, work, in fact, calling on the name of the Lord. We know the New Testament tells us Abraham was longing to see Christ's day. He saw it and was glad. He's hoping. Isaac, never fighting in his entire life for one inch of the ground of that promised land, but rather looking for a future when God would provide an everlasting dwelling that could not be shaken. Jacob, looking ahead in these prophetic blessings that we read about. When will this day come? This is the future he sees, and he speaks it to his sons. This is what God will do. Longing for these things to happen. We read about people longing for what has been promised, longing for the one who would come to do what was foretold. Well, that's enough right there. I mean, that in itself is like, well, that sounds like he's pretty well speaking to us about Christ. If we would have understood these things and believed them, then you should be eagerly anticipating and looking for the one who would come to do these things. From the line of the tribe of Judah would be a king and who this king would bring us back to God through some mighty conflict. You should be looking for Christ. Well, there's, it's, that's not all, brothers. There's more. Moses wrote of Christ also in types and in prefigures. Moses wrote of a man named Adam. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, how is it possible that some one man is going to be able to bring, set all this right and bring us back to God? Well, we read about Adam, and there this one man did something, and it, it brought death and guilt and condemnation for everybody. So have confidence. One man can affect a lot of change for people. 
Adam's actions were counted to everyone associated with him. But God spoke of another. Even in Genesis 3, there's another man who's going to come and he's going to do something and everybody's going to get in on this blessing that he's going to provide for them. What a thing. God speaks of another. His actions will change the fate of every person associated with him. And this is exactly what Christ did. They're just, they're, how do they get in? Well, they're just associated with him. They're just with him. That's it. And of course, that's exactly what Paul argues for in Romans 5. Well, here are all these types of Christ, you know, prefigures, pictures, images of things that he would do or things that, or ways that he was, the figures that he, that he came to be. These are there to help us understand and embrace Jesus Christ and his work when he comes. They're like training wheels for faith. Like, listen, you know, think about the sacrifices in Israel. Why would God offer that? Well, he wants us to understand something about making atonement, something about what it is to be forgiven, something about our need to have someone represent us. And so we, we create priests and because Jesus is going to be a priest. And so all these things are there to teach us ahead of time, to get us thinking the right ways. So that's what these types are there for. We want, God wants us to learn to think along these lines so that when Jesus comes, having believed Moses, we could recognize Jesus. What else do we have? Some of these other, these other uh, ways that Jesus was foretold. Well, Moses wrote very many times of righteous and godly actions of certain people, which resulted in other people being delivered from judgment. As the scriptures move forward, we see there are types and prefigures of Christ in this sense as well. Noah in the ark. Noah secured favor with God because of his righteousness. He stood out and apart, separate and distinct from all the sinners of his day. And he got favor with God, and it resulted in deliverance. Or even the ark itself, which saved every person who took refuge in it from the judgment of God. All they had to do is just ask God, where should I stand? I'll go stand over here. And then they were safe. That's all that was necessary in a sense. Just believe him. And this ark worked to preserve everyone who was with, safely within it. Everyone who took refuge in the ark was preserved from the wrath of God. Abraham rescued Lot, this righteous. Uh, here, Abraham was a, 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 he rescued Lot and all the citizens of those defeated cities in Genesis chapter 14. He was a deliverer of Lot. He was a righteous man who rescues the wicked despite the fact that they have no claim on him to force him to do it. He just does it. He just did it. He just blessed them. And when he sought to deliver them, every single one of them and every single possession that they had, all of it was rescued. Nothing was lost. He secured everything, the text says. All of it was brought back. No, and then he asked for no reward. He didn't need to be honored to receive anything from them. It was just a deliverance, just a blessing. Well, this is a type of Christ, beloved. How about Judah with Benjamin? Judah, out of his great love for his father, he offered himself to take the punishment of Benjamin so that he could deliver what looked like his guilty brother from a life, from, uh, a life apart from his father. He sought to return his brother to his father because he knew how much his brother or his father loved that brother. And he knew that if, his, if that brother was not restored to his father, his, it would be the death of his father. And so what did he do? He said, I'll take his place. Take me as a slave for the rest of my life. I'll give of myself. I'm not guilty. It looks like maybe he is. Take me. I want this brother to go back and enjoy fellowship with my father. That's what he wanted. Is, <laughs> beloved, can it get more clear? <laughs> Judah finally became a faithful son. 
He was a lion of love and righteousness, unfazed at the personal cost and sacrifice necessary to love and rescue his brother. What a picture of Jesus Christ. For the happiness of my father, I'll give my life that I might give to him the brothers that he loves. What a thing. Or how about Joseph and his brothers? Here's another type. There was, Joseph grew up and he was the only righteous son that his, his dad had. None of his other sons were deserving. They're all wicked sinners. But there's just one who's righteous. And he always is doing the will of his father. But he's envied and he's hated by his brothers because of the relationship that he alone has with his father. And because his own righteousness stands apart and condemns their wicked lives. And it just condemns it absolutely. He's hated, he's envied, he's betrayed, he's left for dead. But out of the pit, through all the suffering, he rises to power. He receives a kingdom. He becomes the most powerful person in the world. He saves his brethren. He forgives them of all their sins against him. And he reunites all the people of God unto God, repentant, loving one another and loving God. There's a, there's a picture of Christ. We ought to see in these men something of our Lord. What else? We'll change gears here a little bit. How about Jacob and his vision with the stairway? Moses wrote, you remember, of a, a hidden way upon, or a ladder, a hidden way upon which all the good purposes of God might be ministered to his people, the angels ascending and descending upon that. And Jesus says, that he was that stairway. He said, you'll see the heavens open and the Son of Man, or the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. I'm that way. I'm the, I'm the way that God, if God's going to minister his good purposes to you, it's got to come through me. That's the only way. Up and down upon the, what I've provided. I am that way. We read about in the, in the, the, the story where Abraham was tested about a substitute lamb when Abraham was called to sacrifice his son. It was necessary that they had something to offer, and God provided a substitute lamb so that God's people didn't have to die, but could live and could have all the things God promised them. Beloved, Moses wrote of Christ. So what does Jesus mean then when he says the words, Moses wrote of me? Well, even in Genesis, Moses is writing in such a way that readers ought to look, if we're listening, to a man I'm summing it up here. To a man who would not be like other men, he'd be separate from sinners, yet he would be one of them. And he would deliver them. He would be calling them back to God. He would have power over Satan and over all that opposes God's purposes and God's order. We ought to be anticipating a conflict between this man and the devil, which will result in a mighty wound to this man, but finally a victory for this man. We ought to anticipate a ruler from Judah who would bring this about and that this blessing of being right with God would be opened up not just to his brethren but also to the world and would one day come effectually to every family of the earth. Now what I've just given you is the gospel. Not in New Testament language necessarily, but it's the gospel. And we're just looking at Genesis. We're not digging super deep. We're not finding, you know, the hidden meaning in some text. It's just right there for us. If you would rightly read Moses and believe his words, if you, would, you would be looking then for one who would come. And when Jesus comes, who is the fulfillment of all these things and all these hopes, you would believe him. And if you don't, it's because you don't believe Moses. 
You misread him. You think this is all about something else. You're not letting him tell you what's important. This is why Jesus can say that the reason you don't believe in me to the Jews of his day is because you didn't believe Moses. He was writing about me and you guys just, you don't even pay attention, he says. Of course, he wrote of Jesus. He didn't use the name Jesus or the term Christ, but there is this seed who was to come. There were, there were these descendants of Abraham who were to bring a blessing. There was a specific descendant who was to fight a battle and win and bring blessing to all the families of the earth. There was a certain one from the tribe of Judah who would be victorious and who would rule and all the peoples would come to him and obey him and a great blessing would be the result of this. How can we miss it? By not reading rightly or carefully or prayerfully. By not believing, that's how. We don't have to be... To, to read all this like a scholar, but we do have to read attentively and thoughtfully and with the heart of faith. If we read with dullness in our eyes and hastily through the text, we, we're going to miss Christ. He's here, which is why so many Christians come to this text in John 5 and read that Moses wrote of Jesus and they think, where? Well, don't quit, quit breezing through your devotional time, right? Slow down. Think, What's, what is God telling us here? Everywhere, I mean, where did he write? Everywhere, the whole thing's about him. When you begin to understand and see it, you just can't miss it. Moses didn't tell us Jesus' name, but he told us so much about all the important features of his work and what was going to come and what to expect that if we're listening and reading rightly, we can't miss him. If we read rightly, we might understand the ministry of Christ, maybe even in ways we hadn't quite understood it so far. Learn new things, gain a greater appreciation for him, and certainly a greater understanding of Moses. Well, beloved, that's what I've wanted to bring to you this morning in this hour. I hope it's a blessing to you, and um, your hearts are encouraged and, and helped in some way. Amen.